This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. I recognize that for many people, when we look at what's happening in the nations of the world, it's hard not to get political. Because Israel, like the U.S., is governed by political parties and by political leaders, right? Just like we here in the U.S. have all sorts of different political parties and leaders. When talking about America or the United States, we wouldn't assume that everybody thinks the same. And as a result, I want to say that some of the things I'm going to share today, there's going to be plenty of people out there within the body of Christ, good, God-fearing, Bible-believing people that may disagree with some of my assertions and some of the conclusions that I've come to. And it's okay to sometimes agree to disagree. We don't have to break fellowship over it. We don't have to divide because a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I believe, falls into the category of open-handed discussions. What do I mean by that? A couple weeks ago, we talked about the difference between a closed-fisted issue or an open-handed issue. What's a closed-fisted issue? The resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth, right? Those things the church unanimously agrees upon. And those are things that we, we, don't, we don't part from. We don't, uh, we don't try to you know, move away from. We want to hold on to those things with a closed fist. But there are many things with regards to like how a church is structured or the, the manner in which the gifts of the spirit are administered. Those are kind of open-handed issues. God allows for each church context in a local sense to kind of decide and determine how they want to express that amongst their own fellowship. And so in some ways, some of what I'm going to share may even kind of fit into that category of kind of open-handed issues today. But when speaking about the people of Israel, I want to really differentiate between what the Bible calls biblical Israel or national Israel or ethnic Israel and political Israel, okay? So I want to say it unequivocally. When we talk about biblical, ethnic, or national Israel, what we do not mean is political Israel, okay? And that's important for us to understand. Also, when speaking about any nation, and especially Israel, we need to be careful not to impose our current political realities upon the text. As a teacher and as a, a minister of the gospel, one of the things that we want to try really hard to do well in this house is do good exegesis, not eisegesis. What, it, what is that? Those are kind of theological terms. Exegesis means that we uncover from the text the true meaning of it, meaning we, we seek to understand the way that the original audience heard it and interpret it so that then we can interpret it and hear it the same way today in our context. Eisegesis is putting into the text or superimposing onto the text our own personal views, our own personal politics, our own personal feelings. And right now the church, and I said I'm not going to preach, but here I go. And right now the church has been guilty of a lot of eisegesis, imposing culturally things on the text that were never there. So I want to try very hard today to not do eisegesis, but do exegesis and help uncover what I believe is God's heart for a nation that he chose and still loves today. Okay? That said, I'm not saying any of what I just said to imply that I necessarily disagree or are critical of the current administration there in Israel, the truth is, like all leaders, God calls us to pray for them. God calls us to pray for Prime Minister Netanyahu. God even calls us to pray for President Joe Biden. We need to pray. We need to pray for key leaders throughout the world right now that are caught up in not just political conflict, but spiritual conflict. 
That's as the result of what Paul calls principalities, rulers, and authorities in spiritual places. So we gotta, we gotta pray for these people because the truth is many of them are under a burden that you and I will never fully comprehend or understand. They have to make decisions that are gonna affect the lives of tens of thousands, if not millions of people throughout the world. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is that we should be a people that seek to pray, not criticize. A people that are willing to intercede, not throw stones, amen? And I believe that prayer is powerful and effective. And if you wanna come out to our prayer night this Tuesday, we're gonna pray and we're gonna press into some of this. Secondly, another disclaimer I wanna make. When we talk about biblical, ethnic, or national Israel, I recognize that many good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians are gonna wrestle with how to understand God's relationship with Israel now in light of what he's doing with the church. How do those things work together? What's the relationship there? But I wanna be really clear on this. There is no hope apart from Jesus apart from Yeshua. As a church, we do not believe that anyone can be saved apart from accepting Jesus as Messiah and bowing their knee to him as Lord. We believe the Bible is actually very clear on this. Even now, actually, of the 8 million or so Jews that live in Israel, there's only about 30,000 of them that currently profess the name of Yeshua and actually follow him as the Christ, which means it's a minority. Some people would say it's a remnant We believe that the scriptures are clear that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And we believe that actually the Old and the New Testament, as my Hebrew professor would say in seminary, the First and the Second Testament both point to Jesus. And Jesus as what? As the culmination of God in the flesh. The one who lived, the one who died, the one who rose again to save us from our sins and to rescue us from the kingdom of the evil one. The past couple weeks we've been talking about spiritual warfare and how God has brought us out of this kingdom of darkness and transferred us through the blood of Jesus, through the the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross. He's brought us into his kingdom of light, into his family. And God did this for all of us, not that any one of us should boast in and of ourselves, but that we would boast in this amazing grace, this scandalous grace that saved a wretch like you and saved a wretch like me today. It's this amazing grace that we know and believe is a gift given to all, to all who receive him and look to him to be saved. John 3.16 reminds us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many are thankful for that gift of eternal life and salvation today as a people we are? At the same time, God didn't do all of this as some vague, general, transcendent, unknowable God. He did it as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He did it as the one who is connected to this specific and particular people he calls Israel. And I want to say this, that salvation as we know it comes to us because of Israel. You and I would not know that we needed to be saved if but for the work of God revealed to us through Israel. And I wanna say that with humility, and if that's offensive to you, I'm sorry today, but it's the truth. We would have no idea what salvation even is or is about without the Jews, without the Jewish people. And because we believe that, we actually know and see in scripture that we as the church, as what we call the people of God, 
and even as Gentiles, are grafted into Israel's tree and her root. And what's her root? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew. The Apostle Paul's actually clear about this. Romans 11, verses 17 through 18 tells us, but some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. That's, what's, that's what we're seeing in the world right now. And you Gentiles, courageous church, who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing of God that has been promised to Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment that comes from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch and not the root. Which means that as a church, we don't replace Israel. Did you see the word right here? You must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off because you're just a branch and you're not the root. Jesus is the root, amen? And even as what we call a church plant here in Salt Lake City, Utah, we're not our own little tree. We're not just over here in our little place of the world doing our own little thing. No, we are connected biblically, apostolically, historically, and spiritually to the root, the root of Jesse, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah. And we are grafted into his tree, which is the tree of Israel. It's a beautiful picture when we understand it properly. Paul goes on to say this, in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 31. I want you to understand this mystery. See, there's a bit of mystery regarding this relationship and what God has done in the earth. Dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts currently, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. I'm just gonna pause for effect. When God says all, he means all. He says all Israel will be saved. And the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Zion and he will turn Jacob away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. You see, the covenant, the, the new covenant that we celebrate when we take communion was actually a covenant given to Israel first. We just get to be partakers of it. That's the truth. What was the covenant? Jeremiah said, oh, here's what God's gonna do. In the last days, he's gonna pour out his spirit and he's gonna write the law on your hearts and on your minds. He's gonna take this heart of stone and he's gonna trade it for a heart of flesh. It's this, this beautiful picture of what God has done in and through Christ Jesus to apply the law to the heart in a supernatural, amazing way. And that's really what we celebrate. We talk about the new covenant, that's the covenant. It replaces the Mosaic covenant. It's a beautiful picture of what God's done in Christ. And he goes on to say, and many of the people of Israel that are now enemies of the gospel, the good news of the, the preaching of what Jesus has done, this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people that he loves. How many are thankful that when you were rebellious, you were still a person that God loves, right? When your heart was hard, God still loved you. In fact, the Bible says that while we were enemies of the cross and the work of Christ, he died for us. How many thankful that he still chose to love us even when we didn't love him? In fact, the Bible says he first loved us before we ever loved him. And he says, yet they are still the people he loves because he chose who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their ancestors. 
For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn, can never be withdrawn, can never be withdrawn. That's really important for us to understand and hear right now. If God doesn't keep his covenant with Israel, how can we trust that he's gonna keep his covenant with you and me? If he's not faithful to Israel, why would he be faithful to us? Oh, he could change his mind. He could withdraw the callings. He could withdraw the covenants. He could do a different thing. It says right here, the callings and the gifts of God are not withdrawn. They can never be withdrawn. Verse 30, once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. So because of their rebellion, he shows mercy to you and me. That's <laughs> so amazing. And then he goes on to say, now they are rebels and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. He goes on to say it, and I don't have it up there, but what, what, a, what a marvelous mystery revealed to us in Christ Jesus. How unfathomable, how unsearchable are the ways of God. This is really crucial to understand, you guys. God still has plans to rescue and save Israel. And I recognize that for some of you that maybe grew up within a, a Catholic or maybe a Protestant tradition or maybe an e even non-Christian tradition or an LDS tradition, that this has actually never been taught to you and no one's ever actually helped you understand this. And so it might even sound a little crazy. It might even sound like, whoa, I'm hearing this for the first time. But it's not, because it's right here in our Bibles, in Romans, in our New Testament. Okay, next few minutes, I'm gonna do my best to kind of unpack some of this for you. And I pray that you permit me just a little bit of time to do this today. Okay, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts 15. We're gonna pick up where we left off last week, and we've been kind of jumping around the book of Acts a little bit, but I wanna bring this to where we've been within this series. It'll be on the screen for you, verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And this brought great joy. Say great joy. This brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, say Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them now in order for them to keep the law of Moses. So let's, to begin, unpack some of what's happening here. We know that the Holy Spirit has been moving in power. Signs and wonders are breaking out all throughout Asia Minor, which is kind of lower Turkey and Syria, and then even parts of Greece. The work of God has, has moved out of Jerusalem, and it's been in Samaria, and it's been in Antioch, and now it's kind of moving up and getting closer to Macedonia, which is closer to Spain. And all these wonderful things are happening. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. The people are bringing their sick out into the streets, and the apostles are laying hands on them. And all these wonderful things are going on. There's this explosion of growth in Jerusalem and then all throughout the region. And what has essentially happened is that this salvation that is from the Jews has not remained with the Jews, but has now begun to touch even the Gentiles. Interestingly enough, what did Jesus himself have to say about this salvation when he was in Samaria preaching the good news of the kingdom? Here's what he says. You worship what you do not know. If you have it, let's go back a couple slides and throw it up there. It is John chapter four, verse 22. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For salvation is what? From the Jews. Jesus said it, you guys. Salvation is from the Jews. However, it wasn't supposed to 
stay with the Jews. And so it took a little persecution to kind of give the apostles a little kick in the butt to get out of Jerusalem and begin to take it where? To the ends of the earth. Wasn't that the commission? Wasn't that the calling? Jerusalem, they kind of had that figured out. Judea, which is most of the southern region. Samaria, which is up in the north. And then what? To the ends of the earth. Not just Asia Minor, not just Turkey and Greece. But come on, somebody, Utah. Hey, let's go. So the salvation that comes from the Jews was not intended to stay with the Jews. But a conflict has erupted because some of the Jewish leaders or Pharisees wrongly believed that these Gentiles who were now being saved and brought into the household of faith had to be circumcised. Here was the, the, the critical challenge, okay? The challenge was that most of these Gentiles were not practicing this cultural custom. They didn't practice circumcision for the most part. And I'm not going to talk about circumcision today because it's kind of weird and gross. But <laughs> the point was, circumcision was a sign or a stipulation of the Abrahamic covenant. And these people were so certain that in order for these new believers and Gentiles to be a part of that blessing and covenant, that they had to now follow the stipulations of that covenant. And thankfully, as we're about to see, Peter and Paul are going to set some order and correct some bad theology. But here's what I think is really important for us to understand, okay? Is that a lot of what we see happen in Jerusalem was never intended to stay there. And God wants to use it to reach people that are far from him and bring them in close. All right, let's get back to the text. But some believers, Acts 15, 5, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in, in order for them to keep the law of Moses. As I've already mentioned, part of what we see here is cultural. And what has taken place is there's been a culture clash. How many of you guys know culture can be a little tricky thing to navigate? How many of you would, would raise your hands and say, I'm not originally from Utah? Come on, lift it up. Now look around the room. Look around the room. <laughs> See, you guys are not alone. We're one big, happy, transplanted family. Bless God. When I first met my wife, Candace, in Southern California, which is where I'm from, we started dating, as you do, what was it, 21 years ago. And we had our first date, September 8th. We went to Chili's. <laughs> Chili's baby back ribs. You guys remember that? No jingle? So we went to Chili's after church, but when it came time to order, we had both ordered something that I think came with French fries, and she asked the waiter, can I have some fry sauce, please? And I looked at her like, what is fry sauce? <laughs> I can't screw up here in Utah. But for her culturally, it was a normal thing for her to say, hey, can I have some fry sauce, please? For me, it was not. And I was like, fry sauce, what, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? And she's like, you don't know what fry sauce is? Are you crazy? And so what did we have? We had this kind of culture clash. And that's kind of essentially what's going on here with the early church. There's a, there's a culture clash that's erupted here in Jerusalem. Obviously a much more serious cultural clash. Because as Jews, it was culturally understood that to love and follow and serve God, you had to be circumcised. This was obviously one of the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant. 
But what was the problem? Most of the Gentiles did not follow this culture or practice. They didn't even understand why it was important or why it was even relevant to the discussion. And instead of it being an open-handed issue or matter of indifference, these Pharisees began to rise up within the church and begin to stir up problems and begin to stir up issues and create conflict for them. So the apostles and the elders come together and they go, we gotta fix this, we gotta set this right. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse nine, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter here wisely stands up and reminds them as Jews that the gospel of grace is for everyone. I want to say it again, that the gospel of grace is for everyone. It's for everyone who cries out to Jesus in faith. Can I tell you something? Just as Abraham was made righteous by faith, you and I are made righteous by faith. It is our faith in the God who keeps his promises who saves us by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings us together as his people. Amen? So Peter goes on to remind them that to now hold them to all these stipulations regarding the Mosaic covenant would be wrong. It would be placing them under a yoke that even they could not bear, a yoke that even they could not work under or labor under. Why does he say this? Because as the scriptures remind us, all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why he takes Jesus and he places on him the iniquity of us all. All of us, like sheep, have gone our own way. All of us have sinned. All of us have missed the mark. All of us have transgressed. All of us have rebelled. And so he takes all of that and he throws it on his suffering servant, Jesus, who takes it away for us. Praise be to God. Now, upon hearing the apostle Peter say this, verse 12 goes on to say this. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophet agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of all mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from days of old. The title of my message today for anybody taking notes is Rebuilding David's Tent. Rebuilding David's Tent. With the rest of our time, I want to kind of make sense of this prophetic passage for us because I think it's important not with just regards to Israel's future, but with regards to us here in the church today. So all the apostles have been taking turns kind of standing up and addressing the congregation here in Jerusalem. And lo and behold, James, who we know from biblical history is what? He's the half brother of Jesus. He's the little, little bro of Jesus who grew up with Jesus, which by the way, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Talk about sibling rivalry. That's a lot of pressure. But he stands up, and among the leaders of the church, he actually is appointed the leader of the church over Jerusalem, which is pretty awesome. And what does he say? 
Like Jesus, when faced with a great demonic conflict, he says, it is written. I alluded to it during our time of worship when Jesus went out into the desert and he was tempted by the devil. How did he respond to all of the temptations of the evil one? It is written. He appeals to God's word. And part of the problem in our culture today and why there's so much conflict with regards to Israel and the church's relationship with Israel and people's misunderstanding about Israel is because we don't know the word. Because we don't know our Bibles. Because we don't read our Bibles. Come on, somebody. And if we would get back to being a people of the word where we understand what is actually written in the book, I think it would make sense of a lot of what's happening around us. I think one of our our strengths as evangelicals is that we believe that God's word actually speaks to us in a personal and practical way. I think that's awesome. But one of the downsides is that sometimes we forget that it's not just written to us, but it's also written for others too. And it's primarily written about this people we call Israel. In fact, the Bible is Israel's book, amen? So we need to understand that. Additionally, as Christians, I think it's important that we don't solely mine God's word for our own personal selfish benefit. The danger in doing this is that we sometimes impose our own wants and desires and even cultural baggage on the text and we miss what's going on. So James stands up with this great declaration. He says, it is written, you guys. And then he proceeds to say that he agrees with what the prophets said and then proceeds to quote directly from one of them being Amos. Acts 15, verse 16, again. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from days of old. Now, there's a couple things I wanna point out about this passage. The text says, after this, I will return. After what? What is James or Amos here referring to? If we actually look at the whole context of Amos chapter nine, which is actually where this is from, it actually becomes really clear for us. Let's go there together. Amos nine, verse seven says, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Capthor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So what is happening? A judgment is coming to the house of Israel. There's a judgment upon the way in which the people and their leadership have been ruling the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. You have to remember, after David's time and after Solomon's time, the kingdom of Israel was divided between the north and the south, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That was never God's intention for the land to be divided. It was never God's intention for the land to be co-occupied. It was never the intention of God for this to happen, but this is what happened. And as a result, there's a prophetic indictment that's come upon Israel. And he says, I'm going to judge it. I'm going to judge this sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. What's he going to destroy? The sinful kingdom. How do we see that? Go read first Kings and second Kings. You see all these evil Kings that fall into idolatry and begin to worship Baals and sacrifice the children of Israel to idols and to Molech and all these different things. So he's going to judge the kingdom, the sinful kingdom that's current in this moment, except that he's not going to destroy the house of Jacob. He's not going to destroy the people of Israel, declares the Lord. Verse nine makes it very, very clear. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve and 
no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. There's going to be consequences for the way in which you have lived your life, he says. He says, to those who say that disaster shall not overtake or meet us, that are, that are essentially prideful in their way of life, that have set up their own little kingdoms. Now, some people look at this passage and assume that because Israel has been laid to waste over and over and over again and has been scattered and exiled throughout the earth and throughout the diaspora, that this prophecy has actually already taken place. And I would agree with them if the prophecy stopped right there, but it doesn't. It continues with verse 11. Therefore, in that day, I will raise up the booth, the tent of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they, the people, may possess the remnant of Edom. Those are the descendants of Esau, not Jacob. And, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who will do it. Friends of God, this is the exact scripture that then later James, the brother of Jesus, little James grabs and brings all the way in the New Testament and begins to teach them from and says, this is what's happening. This is the beginning of what we're starting to see, you guys. God is calling out to the Gentiles. He's calling out to those outside of Jerusalem and he's saying, come in, come in, come in, because he's going to rebuild David's tent. Why does he do this? Because he wants the people to understand that there is a prophetic promise regarding Israel's restoration that includes every tribe, people, and tongue. And yes, that means all the Gentiles, not just some of them. And we're given a beautiful picture of this reality, this future reality in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from what? all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands singing Hosanna like we did today and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. As a church, we believe that this is a part of our vision and mandate to help people become courageous followers of Jesus that love their community that eagerly serve their city, but that also brightly influence the nations. We believe that this is a church for the nations, of the nations, to the nations, and by the grace of God, by the nations. Some of you have come to us from nations. We thank you and we bless you today in the name of Jesus. And some of you are watching us from the nations and we thank you and we bless you today in the name of Jesus. But this is a part of who we are as the people of God. This is what we're, we're, we're advancing the kingdom for, for this coming future reality which means that we've got a job to do. But it also means that God has actually called us to a prophetic destiny that is both future-oriented and hopeful, not fearful. Am I speaking to anybody that's hopeful today? Part of the problem when war and things erupt in the earth is that we all start to cower and get a little scared and a little freaked out. Anybody live during Y2K? Remember that? Everybody went out and what, what'd they do? They panic, bought up all the toilet paper. Gee, that sounds familiar. Some of them ran up their credit card debt because Jesus was coming back. Y2K was gonna happen. The computers were gonna shut down. The earth was gonna fall apart. Everybody ran for the hills and freaked out. And then nothing happened and life went on. And some people had a lot of debt to figure out. <laughs> a lot of people, when things like this are going on in our world and we see wars and rumors of wars, the rumblings and the earthquakes and, and all the things, 
start to freak out, we panic. But this prophetic picture of what God said he will do actually is meant to give us hope. It's meant to recalibrate the focus of our eyes and our faith on Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, the one who will actually come and raise up the falling remnant of his tent. What tent? The tent of David. We're gonna get to that in just a second. So there's this future-oriented promise that God has invited us as the people of God into about the days in which we're living. But the truth is, because you and I are grafted into Israel, this promise belongs to them first and foremost. It's not just ours. So we need to understand that because of what the rest of the prophecy goes on to say. Amos 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. This is a metaphor for what God's gonna do when he restores David's tent, when he carries out and fulfills Romans 11. This beautiful picture of, of mountains dripping with wine. You guys know it's hard to, to plant vineyards in mountain settings, right? Last time I checked, I, I haven't met anybody that's successfully figured out how to, to create a vineyard up in the Wasatch. But this is a prophetic picture of what God will do by way of his restoring the land. It's beautiful. Verse 14. And this is probably the most important verse. And he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Verse 15, and I will plant them on their land, on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. A couple other things I wanna say about this. This hasn't fully happened yet. It hasn't fully happened yet. How do we know this? Well, number one, the ancient and ruined cities haven't been rebuilt yet. Okay, number two, because Israel has been uprooted multiple times in the last 2,000 years, many times over. But here he says that they'll never again be uprooted from the land, which is why who actually occupies the land still matters. We're gonna talk about that next week. And number three, the last reason we know that this prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet and most importantly is because the tent of David has not yet been rebuilt, which begs the question, Pastor Jason, what the heck is the tent of David? Okay, the word tent used here in the Hebrew is the word sukkah, and it means covering or booth. It was the, the tent or the, the covering of David that was meant to temporarily house the Ark of the Covenant after David recaptured it and brought it into his city, what we now call Zion. And David's tent was marked by a different kind of reality than Moses' tent, which Jonathan pointed out to us earlier today. David's tent was open to not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. Ooh, this is a beautiful thing, you guys. And it was marked by rejoicing, by celebration, by loud song, cymbals and trumpets and musicians praising and playing around the clock. You think 30 minutes of standing for worship is hard? Come on, somebody. Try 24 hours. And so David, he, he takes these Levites and he sets aside these chief musicians and skillful singers and he commissions them to sing before the ark of God. And he places it under this tent, this open sukkah made with branches 
You guys see the, the, the imagery, Hosanna, Hosanna, the palm branches and all the branches speaking to what? The son of David. And so here David has constructed this tent with, with branches and it's temporary and it's open for all. There's no distinction. There's no inner and outer court. There's literally just the Ark of the Covenant under a tent. There's no inner or outer court and there's no outer court for the Gentiles. There's no court of the Gentiles. So everybody could essentially ascend. They could literally make their pilgrimage to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to the city of David and experience the glory of God. We were praying about it and, and, and leaning into that all morning. Lord, show us your glory. Show us your glory. In David's tent, his glory is shown to all. It's not held back from any. This is what's being rebuilt. And so God uses David, this man he calls a man after his own heart, to create this, this picture, this, this living illustration or metaphor of what he's gonna do when he restores the fortunes of his people Israel and raises up and rebuilds David's tent. Additionally, what was unique about the sukkah was that unlike the tabernacle of Moses, which I just mentioned, or the temple built later by his son Solomon, the tent did not have any walls. It was open for all to come and experience his glory, which is why, precisely why James, the brother of Jesus, is reminding the apostles of this. He's reminding the elders of this. He's reminding the Pharisees about this. And he's saying to them, you guys, listen to me. Remember what Amos the prophet said, after God judges Israel and shakes the nations, he's gonna rebuild the tent of David so that all Gentiles may come into it just like they did in the days of old and don't deny now those that are coming even still. Don't deny the Gentiles now. Let them come and begin to partake in the blessings that are here and not yet, the blessings that are happening and the blessings that are to come. What am I saying? I'm saying that we currently, as the church, as Gentiles who are grafted in, live in the tension between the now and the not yet, between what God has done in days of old, what he did in the early church, and what he will do when he rebuilds David's tent. We're in this tension, and that's where we find ourselves, between what happened at Pentecost, when Jesus sent wind and fire into the church, and what will happen when Jesus the son of David comes again to reign and rule from Mount Zion, from this tent. It's beautiful. Echoing Isaiah 16, verse five, he says this, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness, where? In the tent of David, one who judges and who seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. You guys, who is the one who will establish justice and righteousness in the earth? Come on. It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. That's right. Who is the one who will establish justice and judge the earth? Yeshua, Jesus, the son of the living God. And he assures us that he is the one who is going to rebuild and restore David's tent. Now we can go to this scripture. After this, he says, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Four times, the Lord says, I will do it. I will do it myself, friends of God. What he said he will do, he will do. Which is why we've got to trust that he's faithful to his covenants, that he's faithful to his promises, that he keeps his word. Amen. Jesus likewise said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell or Hades, however you want to translate that, will not prevail against it. He will do it. 
You and I are not going to do it. The political realities of the world are not going to do it. But God will. God will rebuild the tent of David. He will rebuild the ruins. He will restore his people. He will return. And at an appointed time, he will, like Amos says, do this for the people in a way which allows them to never again be uprooted from the land. That's a promise he's going to keep, which is why the land matters. People don't understand this, and they're, they're so frustrated right now with the conflict and all the ways in which, well, couldn't we just have a two-state solution? Couldn't we just give up some land? Couldn't we just allow them to put up a mosque right on top of, the, of Mount Zion itself? You guys, they have tried everything to create peace, to relinquish land, to actually do things that God even told them not to do. They're like, we'll do whatever. And it's never enough. Because how many of you guys know that the enemy wants more? He's not gonna be satisfied with just a little. He wants it all, which is why the land matters and why there's so much conflict over it today. But listen to me, we who are grafted in, into this reality, like Paul says, will get to participate in the coming reign and rule of Jesus when he comes to restore and rebuild his tent. And what will we be doing? We'll be coming together to worship freely in his joy-filled presence, just like with the tent of David, with music and song. Zechariah 14, 16 provides us a beautiful picture, a prophetic picture of what this will look like. Verse 16, do we have it? Yes, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. What's the feast of booths? The Feast of Booths is, is the same word we get sukkah from. It's the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a joy-filled season in the life of the people of God where they come together to be reminded of God's delivering power for their life, of bringing them out of Egypt and, and they're wandering and, and they're remaining in sukkahs and in tents or in booths throughout the wilderness. And it was this also prophetic picture of David's sukkah, of David's booth, of this time where people would come and, and joyfully rejoice in what God has done. They would do this for eight days. This year, October 7th, happened to be the eighth day of the Feast of Booths. What's the eighth day? Not the eighth day in terms of the week, but the eighth day of the festival. It's the Sabbath. And on Saturday, October 7th, Spirit of the evil one drove Hamas to attack the people on one of their highest holy days to come against this reality of the tent of David and the feast of booths on a day that was meant to be a day of rest, a gift to all God's people. Isn't that like the enemy to come against our rest, to attack us during our feasting and our rejoicing, during the, the days that are meant to be the most holy, to bring terror, to invade Timing was intentional, you guys. It wasn't a coincidence. The truth is, the evil one, Satan, hates the Feast of Booths and what it stands for because it reminds him of an everlasting covenant that God has made with his people to be their God and they his people. It reminds them of what God said he would do for this people in Zechariah 12.10, now we can go there, when they finally turn and repent. And he says this, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of, come on, we can do better than that, a spirit of, and pleas for mercy so that when, who? When the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Is there salvation apart from Jesus? No. 
Because there's coming a time when they will look on him whom they have pierced, whose hands they pierced and whose feet they pierced, who they rejected and mocked and scoffed at and spit on. And a spirit of grace will come upon them and they will mourn for him as one who who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. For you parents that have had miscarriages, you know what this mourning is like. There's a sense of loss. Like, oh, we were so close, but we missed it. We were so close, but we lost it. That's what God says it'll be like for these people. For all of Israel who will look on Jesus, whom they have pierced, Yeshua, the Messiah, the Holy One, and go, how could we have been so blind when you have been nothing but good? And it's the spirit of grace that's going to be poured out on them. What's it, is it going to be because we, we persuade people or because we, we argue them into the kingdom or because of the political party that's ruling or because of who's currently occupying the land or what? No, it's going to be because of what God chooses to do in pouring out his spirit. Just like he said he would in the last days. Oh, that my spirit would be poured out on all flesh that my sons and daughters would prophesy. It's going to be a spirit of grace. It's this reality that the enemy hates and is so hostile to. That's why he chose the Feast of Booths in this day to do what he did. But it's this reality that also reminds the enemy that God is going to do it and that he's going to establish his throne in Israel's midst from Mount Zion and that Jesus is the one who is going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. It reminds the devil that he's a defeated foe and that his days are numbered and that he is soon to be crushed underneath our feet, Paul says to the Romans. He's soon to be crushed underneath our feet to the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen? To which we all, as the assembly of the firstborn in the heavens and the faithful remnant left here upon the earth, cry out, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Part of the heaviness of what I've been laboring under this week is not because of anything I've done or you've done or anything that's happened in the world, but it's because of God's heart for humanity right now. And what we see taking place right now on the earth, people on both sides who are losing their lives and losing the opportunity to cry out, God, save us. Yeshua, save. The prophets declared, blessed is he who comes. Blessed is he when he comes. It's probably a better way to understand it. When Jesus comes to do what? To restore his great, 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 great grandfather's tent. A beautiful picture of when Gentiles and Jews come together as the family of God to declare the rule and reign of God and to worship him together for ages. And so to that we say, as a church, Maranatha, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Spirit and the bride say, come. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.